Morning. My name's Kirk Wood. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting this morning, we're very glad to have you with us. This is the second message in our three-part series on the solas of Martin Luther. And as I said, this one, scripture alone, meaning that the Bible alone is the authoritative word of God. Uh, That's what it means in English from the Latin. And uh, it was a revolutionary thought in Martin Luther's day. And it still, today, fuels lots of theological debate, particularly between Protestant and Catholic theologians. So let's get to it. Now, we're going to look at, like I said, a number of passages of Scripture. If you want to bookmark one, I'll give you Hebrews 4.12 if you want to flip there or use your device to get there. Each of them will be on the screen for you, so you can follow along there if you prefer as well. I want to start with two verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is both the longest chapter um, and Psalms are, obviously it's the longest book in the Bible. The 17th century Welsh minister, a guy named Matthew Henry, said this of Psalm 119. He said, it's an excellent means of maintaining a constant communion with God. Uh, It opens with this encouraging promise in verse one. It says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless who walk according to the law of the Lord. Much, much further on, way down in verse 105, it says this, your word, you may know this, is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Perhaps you've heard it. Charles Spurgeon dialed in on that verse and he said this, he said that God's word shows us the way. It illuminates for us the way. It cheers us in the way and it reveals to us the difficulties of remaining in the way of God. God's word speaks. The question is, are we listening? Are we taking it in and applying it and allowing it to refine us? Last week, I headed off to Ontario. I had a a week of vacation to use up, and I, I headed to Ontario with my wife and our kids. We went to my hometown in Stratford, Ontario, southern Ontario, Stay, uh, stay with my mom and uh, my grandparents. And the trip itself was a combination of family time, but also I had to be in Toronto for a couple of days. I was there with Pastor Brent to attend our Fellowship National Convention. And it was a great trip on the whole. Uh, during the two days, though, that I had to go to Toronto, I didn't obviously, uh, somebody laughed when I said had to go to Toronto. I apparently I had to go to Toronto. Um, I didn't get to enjoy the same type of interaction with my family. Kim and the boys stayed in Stratford with my mom. And so my daily interactions with them were a little different. I called them every day. I spoke to them in the morning, spoke to them sometimes midday, and I still call uh, to tuck them in at night. I hope I do that when they're older too. Uh, We spoke briefly, but I did obviously miss the typical physical interactions with my family. I missed morning hugs from the boys, from Kim. I missed their smiles. I missed their laughter. There's always lots of laughter at Nana's house. I missed wrestling with the boys. I missed their silly voices. I missed holding Kim's hand and spending time with her. I missed them. Everybody say, aw. And the reason I miss them is because I know their three voices and their personalities and their character traits and their idiosyncrasies better than anybody else I know in my life. I know them better than I know anyone. I can't imagine, actually, and I had this thought while I was traveling through Guelph to to Toronto, I can't imagine never hearing their voices again. 
I can't imagine not being able to spend time with them, never talk to them, never encourage them, never tell my wife how much I love her, never express my love for my kids, even overhearing their disagreements and how they work those out. I can't imagine not having the occasional argument and making up, not that I want to argue. So while it was bearable to be away from them for a couple of days, did I mention that I was with Brent in Toronto? It was bearable to be away for a couple of days. Um, it, was, it was certainly very enjoyable to come back home. And on my way home, I thought, I don't know why I think so much when I drive, uh, I thought it would be completely unbearable if I never saw them again. It would be tragic. Now, hopefully, you feel the same way about your family. Because where there is love there, and, and, and relationship, there needs to be also an outward expression of that love so that the people we love know that we love them. They need to be able to relate to it, to seal it, to see it, to sense it, and to feel it, they, to know that they are loved. Well, the writer of Psalm 119, David, he so loved the scriptures. And you get that sense if you read the Psalms, the Psalms of David. He so loved the scriptures because he knew that God had a voice. And he knew that God spoke to him through the scripture. He speaks to each of us who desires to know him better, who wants to commune with him more personally, more intimately, and to know him and rely on him more deeply in our living. And he does speak to us. Now, if you're not convinced that he speaks, or if it's been some time since you've heard, I'm going to suggest that perhaps your Bible has been closed. And I'm going to encourage you to open it. And if you're not doing so already, to begin to read it daily. When you do, I'm certain that God will speak to you through the Holy Spirit. That's what Scripture says God does. The Holy Spirit speaks for God. Now, before we go further on this, we're going to get into some history of Martin Luther and the church. Uh, before we go further, though, I want to talk to you about Twitter. Yes, Twitter. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Some of you, you've probably heard about it. You don't necessarily know what it is or what the big deal is. Essentially, what it is at the simplest level, it's a social, mess social messaging service where people can share thoughts, ideas, uh, questions in, uh, now I'm told, 280 characters or less. Apparently, that's a new thing for Twitter. It was 140 characters or less before. I'm actually a little worried what some people are going to say now that they can say twice as much. We'll see how that works. But increasingly, Twitter is used by businesses, it's used by organizations, by individuals, certainly. It's even used by charities and sports teams, and politicians use it to keep people who follow them informed. Uh, it's called a tweet. Tweet your thoughts. This happens publicly, and it happens in real time via a vast social media platform that uh, is reported to have more than 330 million monthly users actively using the site. So if we take the size of a Twitter user's social circle and we factor in all the people that follow them and we consider then their professional circle, if there's somebody who's say, I don't know, a brain surgeon or whatever, they have a, a vast reach of people. If we consider that and then you'd say, well, this person can take, you know, in 280 characters, they can blast something out there and share their thoughts and they can do it instantly. It's easy to appreciate how, if the subject is controversial, or cheeky, it could be taken offensively. Maybe the reaction could be strong. This is not actually my Twitter page. That's not posting live to Twitter, and I'm not taking shots at Brent. I just had to have a little fun with him this morning. 
But if we took a survey of Twitter posts today, if we went online and we could somehow pull the information, we would probably conclude that not everybody on Twitter is just looking to stay engaged verbally. That not everybody wants to participate in a friendly discussion or share an idea. We might think that some people were looking to drive an agenda and maybe even to cause or to further an argument. So there's a reason to be cautious, right? What mom told you, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? In the modern sense, if you can't tweet anything nice, don't sing. Well, imagine for a minute that Martin Luther had access to Twitter in 1517 when he, when he wrote out his 95 theses and he posted them on the church door at Wittenberg. Imagine if he could blast them out in 280 characters for public consumption. We may have found him in deeper trouble sooner with the church uh, than he ended up in initially, as it was his archbishop, a guy named Albrecht, learned about his theses. He took them himself and examined them for heresy, and then he sent them along to Rome for further examination because even the bishop is under papal authority. So it seems that trouble, although it was printed, trouble was brewing for Luther. Now, it was the period of the Renaissance, and if you know anything about the Renaissance and Renaissance history, culture was changing rapidly. Most academic institutions, political ones, were feeling pressure to change. Even the church was feeling pressure. Art was changing. Everything was changing. For the first time, New Testament manuscripts, which were in, in Greek, were able to be compared to the Catholic Latin Vulgate, which is where the Catholic Church, that's the translation of the Bible that the Catholic Church used at this time. And so because of now access to the Greek manuscripts, scholars, a guy named Erasmus would be one, a Dutch Catholic priest, was able to take the Greek, compare it to the Vulgate, and for the first time they discovered that the Vulgate differed significantly in places from the Greek text. The Greek was written at the time of the writing of the scriptures. It was first century, some of them were first century documents. And so what this did was it brought into possible question in the 16th century, it brings into possible question some of the teachings and the doctrines of the church, which had historically since 384 AD when the Vulgate was written by a guy named Jerome, uh, they, the church had historically relied on the Vulgate for its teaching. Now though, uh, with, this, with the access to the Greek, there are a number of reasons to, to favor the Greek manuscripts. I'll give you three. Number one, the Greek language, like I already told you, was the language of the New Testament authors. So when it was written, it was written in Greek. That removes the possibility of being lost in translation. You remember the game Telephone. I don't know if you ever played Telephone. Telephone's a simple game. You line up a bunch of kids, big long row. At one end, we start a message. Today, I walked my dog. And it goes through every successive person. And by the time we get to the end of the message, the goal is to see, did the message stay the same? Well, the problem is, at the end of the message, we have, my dog walked me. And so that's the tension here with the scripture and the change from the Greek to the Latin is, are we walking the scripture? Or is the scripture walking us? A further significance of the Greek text is that they provided a written witness which dated back to the first century. I mentioned that. But here's the thing. This ancient witness now, dating back to the time of the writing of the Bible, the New Testament manuscripts, it breaks the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had in terms of being the sole proprietor of accurate interpretation and application of the scriptures. The church no longer possesses that because now we have the Greek, not just the Latin. That's a good thing. We now have a more ancient historical witness. 
uh, January 1518, a few months after Luther's theses were posted on the wall at Wittenberg, they are um, now translated by some of his friends into German because he was writing to the church and he was posing questions to the church. And so he posed them in Latin, posted them on the door. His friends take them, translate them into German. Germany is not the country that we think of today when we think of Germany. Germany then was a collection of principalities where there were Germanic speaking peoples. And so that simple act of translating them into German meant that they were no longer only available to the clergy and the church. They were now available to the common people who spoke, guess what? German. So that takes in two weeks time, Luther's 95 theses all throughout the Germanic territories, all throughout the principalities that make up modern Germany. Two months. A guy named Johannes Gutenberg, about 77 years before this, invented this thing called the printing press. And his printing press at the time of Luther's theses was operating in about 200 European cities in 12 countries. That meant that Luther's theses could now be mass-produced and effectively mass-mailed all across Europe, and they were. They made their way to France, to England, even to Italy shortly thereafter. His questions concerning the church and church authority had now gone Renaissance viral. How Luther arrived at his positions, his beliefs, is subject to Numerous biographies. It's the 200th anniversary of the Reformation, so there's been lots of stuff on the History Channel. There are numerous, numerous documentaries, books you can read, all kinds of things on Reformation theology that you can take, examine if you wish to. How all of this began or how Luther arrived at it is not exactly known, but it began when guys like Luther and others like a man named Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Menno Simons, these men, these reformers, began to examine the teachings of the church and they began to question the practices of the church. And so by doing so, they have risked their lives in order to correct what they believe to be errors and even abuses. As Brent told us last week, though, the point wasn't, Luther's goal was not to cause controversy for the sake of controversy. He, he wanted to reform the church. It's called the Reformation Movement, not the destroy the church movement. He didn't want to destroy the church. He wanted to reform it. So that brings us to what is sola scriptura. I told you essentially what it is, but really to go a little bit lower in, in, into, into what it is, it's, it's the view that scripture alone is supreme, which means for you listening to me talk today, that human interpretation and any application that I share with you about scripture is actually secondary to scripture. It's not what Kirk thinks. It's what the scripture says. What I think may be valid, it may be supported by scripture. It's very possibly, hopefully, prayerfully accurate, but it does not have the same authority as the scripture itself, which means I, as a member of the clergy, the church clergy and the church leadership are subject to correction by scripture, even when a church member brings it and says, I think you're offside. Errors could now be pointed out to the church by the church members. So naturally, if one accepts that scripture is supreme, then we also reject the right of or the rightfulness of the church to establish any teaching or doctrine on its own that is outside the authority and the oversight of the Bible. You can't say something is if scripture doesn't support it. This means... 
that Catholic doctrine at Luther's time, based partly in scripture, but also partly in church teaching and in uh, church tradition, could not be and should not be regarded as equal to scripture. This caused a problem for Luther, caused a problem for people before Luther too. A man named Jan Hus was executed by burning at the stake about 100 years earlier for similar offenses. I see two things here that in Luther's day were revolutionary. There's probably a half a dozen at least, but two for today. Number one, I already told you, church members could confront the clergy but so, and lowly church monks too, but that didn't happen in the 1500s. You didn't confront the church and challenge them on their teaching and their understanding of scripture because you didn't have access to the scripture. Remember, you had the Vulgate, the Vulgate, was Latin, and it was the language of the educated and the clergy alone, not the people. So this leaves, this leaves the average churchgoer entirely, solely dependent on the church for interpretation and application. And Luther rightly determined that that was not what God had intended because even the church, in his view, should submit to God. Radical thought, right? Now, we live in a free nation, and I know you can make an argument that we're not as free as we used to be. Perhaps freedom is being eroded. Perhaps religious freedom is being impinged upon. And that's probably true to some degree. But relative to other places on our planet, we live in a free nation. And so we have not experienced the same type of institutional oppression and control over our access to the scriptures, our privilege and our right to assemble as believers and worship God. We have not experienced the same type of thing that was going on in the Reformation and that continues to go on in places on in certain places on our planet. But that's exactly what was happening then. Now, since Luther believed that the authority for living was found in Scripture, he felt that everybody should have access to Scripture. After all, if you're going to be called to account for what it says, you ought to be able to read it and discern it through the Holy Spirit who speaks to the believer for God. The tension, though, is this. Where scripture is concerned, think about your own view of scripture. My guess is that most of you would say, yeah, I believe that scripture is God's word. It may be a little bit further of a step to say that you would view it as supreme. Because I mean, really, like believing it's God's word and saying I'm living and therefore I'm going to live by it in every area of my life. That's a little bit further of a commitment step. But let's say that's where you are, that scripture is supreme. I'm going to live by it. It's God's word period. My guess is that at some point you've struggled with some of the things that it says, with even some of the things that it seems to not say. You know, like it talks about slavery. That's an uncomfortable subject for us. It doesn't seem to talk about dinosaurs. Have you been to Drumheller? It talks about creation it doesn't seem to talk about evolution, not to mention it talks about these bloody battles and wars that not only did God permit, he actually authorized and in some cases commanded, right? Wipe them out, every one of them. And so, so, so if, if scripture is God's word and scripture is supreme, there's a tension here because some things it doesn't seem to say and some things it does and some of the things that it does, we, we struggle with. But the apostle Paul, he says this in 2 Timothy he says that we can trust the Bible and that it's authoritative because in verse 16, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. Another translation words it as breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, you and I, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the problem is this. The problem is, if we say the Bible is God's word and it is the authority, the problem is our culture doesn't picture scripture when we talk about authority. They, they, they may think about a number of things that are authorities in our world. Police officers are an authority. They have powers and authority to act in certain situations. Teachers are an authority in the classroom for our kids. Politicians have authority to pass and enact laws, and so they're an authority. Even referees and umpires, sports officials, are an authority in the context of the game that they're charged with, with supervising, with officiating. Parents, your authorities. Your kids know that, even though they rebel from time to time. They know you're an authority. Your boss is an authority. One that I would suggest you not subvert unless you plan on looking for new work. But notice that, that each of these human authorities has a higher human authority that it's vested under. Teachers answer to a principal who answers to a district superintendent, who answers to the school board, who answers to the Ministry of Education in Victoria, who answers to the Federal Minister of Education in Ottawa, who ultimately answers to the Prime Minister. Every human authority has another human authority over it. Luther believed that the Bible was the authority. Only scripture is supreme. Luther looked at other human authorities differently too. He looked at the, the writings of the apostles that are contained in scripture as the spoken word, the authoritative word of God. But the other apostolic, apostolic writings that are not contained in scripture, because John wrote other things that are not in scripture, there are other letters and partial letters and whatnot. There are other things not contained in scripture written by those early church founders, but he did not view those as being the authoritative word of God. Why? Because they weren't uniquely inspired by God. They're not in God's word. So they are not supreme. They may be accurate. They may be true. They may rely on scripture to support them, but they're not scripture. Only the writings contained in the Bible. Not centuries of church tradition, not even the Pope, not even the pastors at Southridge. Only the Bible. So the question for you is this, what is your authority for living? Where do you draw your authority for living from? It's probably another safe bet for me to say that um, the world does not get its authority from the Bible. We don't have to look too far to see that that's probably true. Our, our, our world takes its authority from human culture. We get our authority from ourselves. So what's culture? Dictionary defines culture as a particular form or stage of a civilization. Notice that it's implied that things change, right? It's a particular stage of a civilization. The stage of our civilization is constantly in flux. Culture is constantly changing. And I'm gonna suggest that the stage of our civilization is not only a post-Christian culture, but it's actually an anti-Christian culture. Having said that, I am not today or ever going to go on the attack against culture. I'm not going to criticize music. I'm not going to shame Hollywood. I'm not going to thumb my nose at politics or anybody who struggles with culture because I have my own struggles with culture. 
If you know me well, spend a few minutes with me. I have my own struggles with the culture of the world. And some of them, newsflash, church, from time to time are even sinful. Perhaps you've also struggled with the influence of secular culture in your life. My point is this. The Bible doesn't embrace, excuse me, (laughs) culture doesn't embrace the Bible as its authority. So why would we look at culture and expect to see godly principles coming out the other side. That's not fair. That's not right. We can't have a debate with people in our world around a cultural subject from a moral standpoint that we think or we believe is rooted in scripture and expect that when they see it from a human rights side, that somehow the two are going to converse. If it's a human rights issue for them and it's a moral issue for me, we're not talking the same language. I can't expect them to see it in a godly frame of mind. But when we identify with culture by what we do, what we say, and how we live, when we embrace it in ways that are contrary to the scripture, then haven't we not only allowed that aspect of culture to influence us, but haven't we actually allowed it to become our authority for for what's okay? At least in that area for that period of time. Again, I'm not going to attack culture. But there is an authority tension for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who call ourselves Christians. And the tension is this. God has given us the scripture to keep us from evil. Remember the Lord's Prayer? I had a fascinating experience with my son. We were at church in in Ontario and we recited the Lord's Prayer. This is a lot of vulnerability coming out right now, by the way. I'm a pastor. My son doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. I didn't know he didn't know it until we said it. And I looked at him and he was not saying anything. I said, do you not know the Lord's Prayer? He said, I don't. Whoa. Okay. Dad's got some work to do. You remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Pastor John Mark Comer, pastors a church in uh, Oregon, Portland, I believe. He says that earth is where God's will is done some of the time. But heaven is where his will is done all of the time. That's from his book called God Has a Name. It's actually available in our library if you'd like to pick it up. In John 17, Jesus speaks about this to his father and he says this, he highlights this tension further and he not only provides us with our understanding or he also provides us with our understanding of in the world and not of the world. He says this, I have given them, he's talking to his father, remember, I have given them, humans, your word. The Greek word there is logos, meaning God's moral precepts. So Jesus says to his father, I have given them your moral precepts. In doing so, he's affirmed that God's precepts are found in his word. They're found in scripture. They're not found in secular culture. Because remember, he said earlier, keep them, the Lord's prayer says, keep them from evil, right? Keep us from evil. So Jesus affirms that they're found in his word. And he goes on and he addresses the tension a little further. This will be on the screen for you. Um, He says, and the world has hated them. I gave them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you 
Keep them from evil, from the evil one. Sounds like the Lord's prayer again, doesn't it? John Owen was born almost a century after Martin Luther. He was a prominent church leader, politician, and theologian. Uh, And he said this, he said, if the word does not dwell with power in us, it will not flow with power from us. And that's why Luther's commitment to sola scriptura is so important. Scripture alone is the word of God. God's word shaping and refining you and me so that even in an imperfect culture, we begin to look like Christ. And we begin to influence our world and our culture for Christ as he intended. In January of 1521, couple of years, obviously, after the 95 Theses were posted at Wittenberg, Pope Leo issues an excommunication decree against Martin Luther for what he said were 41 supposed errors and heresies contained in his 95 Theses and his other writings. Luther was a prolific writer. He wrote some 600 works. So the Pope says he's to be excommunicated. Later that spring, in April, Luther is summoned to appear at what's called the Imperial Assembly, or the Diet of Worms. When I was a kid going through uh, uh, as in, in the Presbyterian church, I was going through confirmation classes. I heard the diet of worms. I thought that had something to do with his punishment for being a heretic. It wasn't, it was a place. The diet, the imperial diet was the assembly of all of the imperial authorities and the religious authorities. Charles V was the emperor and it takes place in Germany. And on the 17th, Luther appears before the Holy Roman emperor and he's asked this question. Are these your works. They had stacked his books, his writings up in front of him. And they said, are these your works? They've now given him the opportunity to renounce them or to support them, to to stick with them. Basically, do you have anything you'd like to say? Luther was given the opportunity to defend, but what he did instead was he asked for time in order to formulate a decision. Now, some people have said uh, that perhaps he was scared, perhaps he was overcome, perhaps he was emotional, um, perhaps he was weak. Perhaps he actually thought about renouncing his faith in sola scriptura for fear of an execution like John Huss burning at the stake, perhaps. Not likely, As a man of the word, he no doubt knew of the need to call on his father to pray, to seek strength and counsel from God and also from friends and mediators who love the Lord and who had spoken into his life all along the way. And so he's granted basically um, a continuance, if you will. And the next day at four o'clock, he's called back before the group and he's asked again, are these your works? And Luther says simply, they're all mine. He gave some further clarification about them, about why they should perhaps consider them in different veins. They're not all, you know, well, perhaps you think this is heretical, but this shouldn't be considered as that. He tried to clarify for them why they should look at them differently, but he didn't recant anything. He actually said this to the the group. He said, if I now recant these, I would be doing nothing but strengthening tyranny. Remember who he's speaking about here. This is post-excommunication. So he's really talking about the church. I'm sure that went over like, a bag of hammers in Rome. He then concludes his defense and he says this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by, the, by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me, amen. Some historians have recorded that this is the place where Luther said, here I stand, I can do no more. Turns out that's 
probably not historically accurate. It's not listed in the original transcript of the meetings. What is listed is he said, may God help me. Because he knew when he said those statements, when he didn't recount those teachings, he knew that he was risking his life, that he was risking death, that he could be executed. And so what does he do? He calls on the authority. He calls on his father. He says, may God help me because no one else will. No one else can, only God. So my question is this, do we believe, do you believe that scripture is God's word? If that question was put to you, could you answer it in that way? Firmly, convicted. If we believe it's his word, do we spend time reading it? Do we allow it to to transform us, to correct us, to refine our thinking, to encourage our faith, to help us navigate the things we just don't understand and to equip us for living? And are we living in a way that the culture around us is influenced because of what we believe about God and his word? Or are we just throwing rocks at culture? I do believe with all of me, I had to really, I really had to spend some time praying about this and, and just to be able to say this to you with conviction I, I do believe this is God's word. I also know there are things I do not understand and I will not understand in this life very likely. There are tough things in here. But I believe it's his word and I read it and I study it. But I also don't. I don't do that faithfully enough. I don't. And I certainly won't stand here and pretend in front of you that I have allowed the Holy Spirit to affect everything in me that he wants to affect. Remember, he's the one who speaks for God. He's the active person of God's word. The Holy Spirit speaks to believers. I can't stand here and say, I've let him do all the transformational work in me that he wants to. And if you've spent 10 minutes with me, you know that's true. And I wonder, would anybody say that? Would any of us say, no, I believe it's God's word and I have let him do exactly in me what he wants me to do, amen, Would any of us say that? Probably not. Look at Hebrews 4.12 for a minute, the verse I promised you would get to. For the word of God is living and active. The word of God, that's logos again, the word of God, God's precepts for living. John also used that word logos in chapter one of his gospel when he said this about Jesus. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. See, the Bible points to Jesus as the spoken word of God and the creation agent of God. And so the first step to believing in the authority of scripture has nothing to do with sitting down and reconciling all the difficulties and answering all the questions that scripture raises. It has nothing to do with discerning the tensions and arriving at a place of logical conclusion. Submitting to the the authority of scripture as the word of God has everything to do with encountering Jesus. Jesus. Look at it again. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. My thoughts could use some judging. 
my heart attitude needs to be Jesus Christ adjusted from time to time and with more frequency than I care to admit. And here's the thing. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and I need God to do a work in me. Perhaps you'd say the same. So if we're in agreement that this book is his word, then haven't we concluded that it ought to be our authority for living as well? I mean, it seems like that should be the conclusion. If this is the spoken word of God, then it should be my authority because if not his authority, then whose? I mean, certainly we wouldn't put our hands up and say, well, it has to be culture. Culture, I'm not attacking culture, but culture, remember, it's a snapshot of a society at a particular time. Culture is constantly changing, shifting, evolving. What was wrong then is not necessarily wrong now. What's wrong for me may not be wrong for you. That's culture. It's how we feel about things. If not God's word, then whose? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change. Culture changes. Now, I don't know about you. I don't even want some combination of scripture and worldly wisdom. I mean, that didn't work out well the first time pre-Reformation. I don't see it working out well in the future, although Satan would probably love it. He would probably love if we had just enough of truth but allowed for some heresy or some cultural influence to throw us off the rails. You'd probably love that. In fact, I wonder if we look in the world around us, if we don't see that sometimes. I wonder if we look in the mirror, if we don't see that sometimes. Psalm 18 verse 30 says, as for God, his way is perfect. God's way is perfect. Not cultures, not mine, not yours. And then it says this, the Lord's word is flawless. Martin Luther believed in God's word. He learned about God's righteous character. And last week, Pastor Brent told you how he learned through scripture, Romans, that he could have a righteousness apart from the law. That because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, that righteousness was available for Martin Luther, a man who was deeply convicted and and struggled with his sin, learned about righteousness through the scripture. And he learned it by reading the scripture. If you're a follower of Jesus, then perhaps you have had a similar experience. Perhaps God woke you up to who Jesus is and you were drawn to faith in Christ. That was my story. I have a good ways to go. I do. My character needs more reforming and refining. But I have not been the same since he woke me up. I have not been the same since he called my name. And you haven't either. And so I would say to you, keep If you are a believer, keep reading, keep studying, keep meditating on scripture and allowing God to do and affect in you what he wants to do. I know you're busy. I'm busy too. I'm too busy. We all are. But we already know that God's word is profoundly transforming because it was his word that woke us up to to Jesus, right? We already know it's profoundly transforming and therefore it's deeply worthwhile. So I would say to you, keep going because he's got so much more that he wants to accomplish through us, through you, through me, through his church, because that is the hope for our culture, that Christians will affect and infect our culture with a righteousness apart from the law with God's word. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I will make a similar suggestion to you. Begin reading this book. I started reading this in mid-May, the year my sister was married, because she gave me a Bible for standing as a groomsman in her wedding, and I felt obligated 
to my brother-in-law, Jeff, and my sister to start to read it, even though I, I didn't believe very much of what was in it at the time. I wasn't a Christian, but I felt obligated to read it. So if you've ever given me a book, rest assured, I'll read it because you gave it to me. But this one changed everything. I started reading it and that's how I started to, re- to discover and to realize that there's truth in here. And I still wrestle with some of it and we will on this side of eternity, but scripture is living and it is active and God is powerful. When we read it, Jesus penetrates our thoughts and our attitudes and he begins to transform us into all that he desires for us to become when we read it. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up to the stage as they come I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your week. I want to pray for your relationship with the God who loves you through the word he gave you through the scriptures. So will you join me as we pray? Well, Father, we pause after time here in a history lesson about a great man, Martin Luther, who you worked powerfully in and through because of his love for your word and his commitment to your word. And so God, for those of us in the room who call ourselves children of God, followers of Jesus, Lord, would you convict us and help us and lead and guide and direct us to study your word, to know it, to apply it to our lives, to allow you to refine our thinking with it. Because God, we know we live in a world and a culture that desperately needs more of Jesus. And so God, we ask you to do this. We ask you to do it for us because we know when we confess that we have great needs and that we have gone astray and we have done wrong and we have sinned. But also, God, because there are so many people in our world who do not know Christ. So God, do in us what you will, what you would, so that we can be an influence for them, so that we can, as a church, not only love you, but love you in such a way that we change this world one life at a time for Jesus. And God, for those in the room who are considering faith and Christianity, there are so many messages. There are so many systems of belief and thought. And so God, I just ask that you would, through the Christians around them, that you would speak to them, that they would begin to discover, to realize, to feel truth and the absolutely enormous love you have for them. And that begins with your son, Jesus. So God, reveal Christ to them. May he become as real as the sun to them. And may they draw close to him, Lord, and begin to consider, to study, to examine, and be transformed by your word. We pray this in the holy, the powerful, the glorious, and the set-apart name of Jesus Christ. Amen.